Thank you for listening to this audio from Trinity Presbyterian Church in Spartanburg, South Carolina. For more information about Trinity, visit our website, trinityspartanburg.com. Let's pray and we'll turn to the Westminster Confession of Faith again. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your Lord's Day. We do give you praise for uh, your grace and kindness towards sinners through your Son. We thank you also for the gift of the uh, Spirit who indwells us and reveals to us um, your glory, your truth. And we ask that as we uh, study your word and this confession that you would give us wisdom again and that we would put that wisdom uh, to good use in walking in a way that glorifies your Son. So help us this morning, Father, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so chapter 22 of the Westminster Confession of Faith this morning. And that chapter, if you picked up a copy at the door, is on lawful oaths and vows. Seems strange to us, doesn't it, to have a whole chapter in the confession that just deals with oaths and vows. Because we don't think, we don't think much about oaths and vows anymore. Uh, we live in a postmodern era when truth is subjective, right? Truth is personal. Each person has their own truth. And so when you think of oaths and vows and, and uh, objective truths to which we commit ourselves, well, there's not much of that in play today. There's a lot of subjectivity. And so this sort of pulls us into another era, although it shouldn't. Oaths and vows are still a part of our lives. Each and every day, you are making oaths and vows. Anytime you say yes, anytime you say no, you have made a, a vow before the Lord. And your yes is to be yes, and your no is to be no. And so there's a very high standard in Scripture for oaths and vows. And you're taking them all the time. Now... Um, Let's start here. What is the difference between an oath and a vow? I'll open the floor for that. Any sense of what, what's different between the two? Because it is significant, the difference. And it's pretty simple, actually, the difference between those things. So we need to make a little bit of a distinction between the two. Yeah, Bob. Um, yeah, that's, that's certainly an aspect of it. Vows are personal promises made before God. Oaths are personal or promises made before God and some institutional authority, right? And, and so that begins to flesh it out. Um, vows, personal promises to God. But here, here's what I think um, really helps distinguish the two. An oath is a, is a promise to tell truth. And a vow is a promise to fulfill an action. Okay? 
And so when you make an oath, you're saying this, this testimony under oath is going to be truthful. You're committing yourself to truth. But when you take a vow, like a wedding vow, you're, you're vowing to fulfill certain ab- obligations and promises of actions that you make. So that's the distinction between the two. And so we take oaths when we, you know, give testimony before a court. You would take oaths um, before you testified before the session. If, you, if your, uh, your discipline came to formal discipline, you would take an oath to tell truth. Um, but you take vows when you become in, a member of the church. You vow to uh, submit to the discipline of the church. Um, you vow to uphold the word of God, right? Those sorts of things. Pastors and elders take vows as they are ordained to fulfill the, the, the work of ministry. And uh, marriage vows, you're committing yourself to uh, fulfill all the activities that are laid out in God's word for marriage. And so, you're to, and so that's, that's the difference. Oaths are to tell truth, vows to fulfill promises. And, um, and so the first four sections deal with oaths, and then the last three sections deal with vows. Um, an example of an oath, since we're starting there, is do you promise to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth? And you say yes as your hand sits on the Word of God. Do they still do that? You do have to make the oath, but you don't have to use the Bible, right? Not in all circumstances. Okay, so let's read the first section and talk... Oh, one, one other bit of historical context. Why do you think this would be so important to have in the Westminster Confession of Faith, right? Um, what was the context that they were dealing with? Any thoughts on that? Yeah, certainly the, um, the I would say the early reformers, the first generation reformers, certainly um, discussed monastic vows and their sinfulness. Uh, Calvin, in his institutes, rails on monastic vows, vows of celibacy, vows of poverty, um, obligating yourself to fulfill something that you don't have in your power or to fulfill or commands from the Word of God. And so they rail on that, and so that's, that's part of it. recantations of vows, um, not, not that I'm aware of, but um, certainly that's all throughout the taking of vows, as you have people renouncing previous vows that they obligated themselves to. We'll talk about that a little bit. Um, the Anabaptists. <laughs> the Anabaptists, who did not like any authority, I mean, you could almost call the Anabaptists the anti-authority um, crowd, okay? 
they, there's, a, there's a wonderful strain, I, don't, I wouldn't call it wonderful, but there is a wonderful strain of Anabaptism swirling about the church today. And the Anabaptist strain resonates with America's individualism very intensely. We have a tendency as, as Americans to distrust institutions. And um, somehow that connects back to the Anabaptists and their unwillingness to ever take a vow, even in a courtroom, they would not take vows to tell the truth because they wouldn't vow before any man. And so um, this militates against that view. There, the Westminster divines are like, no, there's appropriate times to take oaths and vows. And we can't go Anabaptist and deny that vows have any place anywhere at any time. Every man is not unto himself. There are authorities over us and committing ourselves uh, before those authorities to truthfulness and to make promises is legitimate. So, so that's what they were um, fighting against at this time. So let's read the first section. A lawful oath is part of religious worship. Why is it part of religious worship? Because in it the name of God is being um, spoken. Okay, you're committing yourself before God. And so if the name of God is involved, it is an act of worship. Wherein upon just occasion, the person swearing solemnly calleth God to witness what he asserts or promises and to judge him according to the truth or falsehood of what he swears. Okay? So um, that oath that is taken is to come in just occasions, right? It has to be a legitimate occasion where this would work. There are illegitimate occasions when you might commit yourself to things that go against the Word of God. The person swearing solemnly calls God to witness. Now that's the intensity of oaths and vows. Who's your witness? God Almighty. Now think about it. God hates lies. God has forbidden us to lie. And breaking an oath is like having formally committed to truth and breaking it. So if God doesn't like lies, he really, really does not like breaking of oaths and vows that commit, yourself to, that commit you to good things. Right, that commit you to licit things. But God is the witness. God is the one who is watching you as you make promises. There's also other witnesses around you. There are witnesses in a court case, the judge and the jury. Right? There are witnesses in the church when you give vows in, in your marriage. You invite people to your wedding ceremony as witnesses. They're not there to bring you loot. They may do that, but that is not the purpose of them. The first line of witness, right, is the best man and the maid of honor. The second line of witnesses is the, gr the groomsmen and the bridesmaids. And then the third line of witness is the entire uh, invited crowd. All there to witness you make to solemnize those vows. And so 
if you don't fear God, you ought to fear that. But no one takes it seriously anymore, right? We don't even know that we're there as witnesses. We just think we're there to have a party and to make sure someone doesn't faint if you're the best man. It's always the guy who faints in my experience. It's really weird. You know? Um, it's a great burden, says Mike, newly married. <laughs> oh, I, okay. For the best man. The best man has to make sure he's ready to pounce at any minute. Um, he's got to keep his eyes on your eyes. Yeah, but, but we, and so, um, but, but these, again, these promises are made before God, and that's the thing that ought to show, sober us up. That our yes before somebody is witnessed by God, our no before somebody. Every business contract you sign your name to, Ryan, God is witness. And you have to let your yes be yes and your no be no. That doesn't mean that there aren't times to um, get a lawyer and renegotiate terms of contracts, right? That can be done, but if you make, but, but that has to be done solemnly just as anything else, right? But that promise, these promises are so important. This is about truthfulness, right? This is just about, this is about us not being uh, two-faced. Not promising things people just to get them off of our back and then fully intending to do something else. I mean, some, some have no compunction of conscience when it comes to um, making promises. You promise your boss that you're going to finish something on Friday and you have no intention to get it done by Friday and you know that when you tell him, right? And that's the breaking of a vow. It's a breaking of a vow. And uh, be truthful and say on Monday and then your boss says no Friday and then get it done on Friday, right? That sort of thing. Anyway, so... God is witness, but there are also other witnesses. Certainly in a courtroom, we, we understand that. And um, <clears throat> you will be judged according to the truth or falsehood of what you swear. God knows when you're lying. God knows the, every intent of the thoughts of your heart. That's pretty intense. That's a gaze that we don't have. We look upon somebody making a vow and all we have is their words. God looks on the heart, sees the intent of your heart, knows exactly what game you're playing if you're playing a game in the promises you make. Number two, the name of God only is that by which men ought to swear. And therein it is to be used with all holy fear and reverence. Therefore, to swear vainly, or rashly, by that glorious and dreadful name, or to swear at all by any other thing is sinful and to be abhorred. Yet, as in matters of weight and moment, an oath is warranted by the word of God under the New Testament as well as the Old, 
So a lawful oath being imposed by lawful authority in such matters ought to be taken. Again, they're laying that work, fighting against the Anabaptists who won't, who won't vow anywhere um, to anybody. And they're saying, no, no, it, it, we find them in the Word of God. We see examples of vows taken in the Word of God, both Old and New Testaments. And if there's a legitimate reason to take an oath, then, then um, it ought to be taken. But notice the way they describe God's name. To swear vainly or rashly by that glorious and dreadful name. Right? There's language we don't use for God anymore. Awe-inspiring, but dread-inspiring, dreadful name. Um, you're only to swear, you're only to take oaths based upon God's name. Now, Matthew, where is it in Matthew 5? where it says uh, at 33, Again, you have heard that the ancients were told, you shall not make false vows, but shall fulfill your vows to the Lord. But I say to you, this is Jesus speaking, make no oath at all. And some people stop there. Right? The Anabaptists would read the Scripture that way, and there are some Christians who in good conscience stop there and say, I can't make oaths because of what Jesus has said there. I don't think Jesus is forbidding oaths. Um, we, we see examples of oaths when, when Paul later says, God is my witness, before he says something in the Scriptures, right? As God is my witness, here's what I testify is truth. He's making an oath right there, right? So we see the Apostle Paul doing it. But, you have, um, but I say to you, make no oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is the footstool of his feet, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. Nor shall you make any oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. So what things were mentioned that you shouldn't take an oath upon or a vow? Heaven, earth, Jerusalem, your head doesn't mention God, right? But let your statement be yes, yes, or no, no. Anything beyond that is of evil. And so there is a, an oath that's legitimate, and that's when you say yes. And God is your witness, and you have made an oath right at that point, anytime you say yes. Or when you say no, you've made an oath. Right there. God is the witness of that. And so we don't say, well, yes, I, you know, I, I, by the, by the gold in the temple, you know, I swear that I'll tell the truth. No. We say, yes, I'll tell the truth before God. And that's always our vow. That's every one of our yeses, every one of our noes. And so I don't think Jesus is forbidding oaths. He is locking us into one kind of oath, which is the oath that they put here, which is oaths under God and before God, okay? Any questions on that or blowback or concerns, Bob?
oh, I have no idea. I mean, I th- I'd have to go into what the Jews practiced, and I, I think the Jews used to have varying levels of oaths based upon the importance of what they were vowing to. And so it was easier to break an oath that you made on Jerusalem than it was an oath made under heaven. I think there was just a hierarchy of, of oath-making. And Jesus is coming along and saying, you know what, no, all of those oaths you made are the same, they're under God. God has witnessed them all. You made those oaths before God. So he's taking all those out of the way, these lesser oaths, and saying, and raising them all up to, um, to uh, before God. I don't even know what that phrase means. Yeah, it is. Yeah. Um, in matters of wait and moment, an oath is warranted by the Word of God. Okay, it's, it's listed, it's commanded uh, under the New Testament as well as the Old, so a lawful oath being imposed by lawful authorities in such matters ought to be taken. Um, section 3, this is committing us now to truthfulness. Whosoever taketh an oath ought duly consider the weightiness of so solemn an act, and therein to avouch nothing but what he is fully persuaded is the truth. Neither may any man bind himself by oath to anything but what is good and just, and what he believeth so to be, and what he is able and resolved to perform. So, Th- this is just committing you to truthfulness. If you make, make an oath before a, an institutional authority, you've committed yourself to truth, even when it hurts, right? You've committed yourself to what you understand to be truth. Your observations in this situation, your answers must be answered um, with truthfulness, not with Not with um, the next section says, an oath is to be taken in plain and common sense of the words without equivocation or mental reservation. You know, you're not supposed to like start to get nuanced and and say, well, there's a way I can can twist the situation and make truth, make me the master of truth, right? There's a way that I can make this oath that will allow me then to... um, bend the truth without breaking the truth, right? But I think this is pushing us toward, okay, be truthful. Be truthful, uh, you know, you know when you're manipulating. You sense it. Those wheels in your head start spinning. And you'll say things like, like um, Bill Clinton said under oath. It depends on what the meaning of the word is, is. Right, that is not a commitment to truth. Right, that is a commitment to obfuscating. And, um, and we should not do that because God hates that. And he hates sin, and that would be sin. And we should have that in, in our mind. Are we more concerned with... with um, 
the oppression that might come from an authority than we are the discipline that might come from God the Father Almighty. I mean, that's the weight. That's what we start doing a cost-benefit analysis on. Um, Section 3, that's what we just read, right? In the original version, there was a, there was a, this is the American version that we, we hold to, okay? In the 1780s, the American Presbyterian churches took the old Westminster Confession, knocked out a few things, added a few phrases to make it make more sense within the context of not a tyrannical monarchy, but within a constitutional republic, Okay, that motivated a lot of things that they changed. But they, they took out this phrase from this section. It would, it would have been the last phrase, uh, last sentence of section 3. Yet is it a sin to refuse an oath touching anything that is good and just being imposed by lawful authority. So they took out the phrase that says... Um, it's a sin to refuse anything that is good and just being imposed by lawful authority, the imposition of oaths upon people. And I think the reason they did that, one was the context and religious freedom motivated a lot, if not all of the changes in the Westminster Confession from England to America. Religious freedom hugely impacted the Westminster Confession of Faith, okay, in the the American revisions. And so I think in this one, they may be thinking of the imposition of state denominational um, oaths, Uh, but they, I think they were also allowing those who in good conscience thought that they couldn't take oaths to not take oaths right? Just allowing the freedom there, that, that it's a matter of conscience, that there are some people who seriously don't want to make any oaths at all, and so we're, we're allowing that, whereas the old Westminster, Westminster did not allow that. You couldn't hold that view. It was just like, no, if they want you to do it, you got to do it, and so they, they created some space there, um, so it allows for Christians in good conscience who think it is a sin to take an oath not to take an oath in this. Interesting to me. Section four. An oath is to be taken in plain and common sense of the words without equivocation or mental reservation. It cannot oblige to sin. But in anything not sinful being taken, it binds to performance, although to a man's own hurt. Nor is it to be violated, although made to heretics or infidels. All right. Heretics and infidels. So a few things in this. An oath is to be taken, you know, without equivocation. It, you cannot take an oath to commit sin. You cannot. What's the great example of this in Scripture? I mean, there are many, actually. Jephthah is probably the first one to come to mind. Jephthah makes a a vow 
that the first, if God gives them victory over the, the Ammonites, I think, uh, when he returns, the first thing that comes out of his front door, he will sacrifice in a burnt offering. And it's his daughter. Okay? That is a rash vow. That was a vow that committed him to commit sin or potentially commit sin. Rash vows should be broken. You don't keep vows to commit sin. Okay? That goes contrary to, to the whole point of a vow, which is to keep you to the Word and to truthfulness and to God as witness. And so he, he did sacrifice his daughter to... Um, he, you know, human sacrifice was not, was not allowed in Israel, okay? It was not allowed. And so he was breaking God's law explicitly. He should not have um, lit her up and murdered her, right? He committed himself to murder. But there's other examples. There's other examples of, of this in in Matthew 6, Herod commits himself to, because of the dinner guests, behead John the Baptist. Um, in Acts 23, 40 men commit to murder Paul before the council. They're like, you know, we're not going to eat until Paul's dead. You remember that? Those are all oaths. Those are all vows taken to fulfill something that, if fulfilled, would be breaking God's word and would be sin. That you cannot do, okay? And so, that it's, it, but sometimes we want to do that. It's like, oh, I, you know, it's like missionary dating. You know, I commit myself to, to witness closely to an unbeliever by, you know, entering into a relationship with them. And we paint all these positive colors, and it's just sin, right? It's like you don't vow to commit sin. That is um, wrong. It's an abomination. The, um, now, the, the other thing that's interesting in this is none of this, your context, if you live in under heretics or infidels, doesn't free you from having to make oaths before them, right? And so this is where the Anabaptists went ballistic. They were just like, no way would we take any oaths under any um, person other than Jesus as president, right? They just, they would not do it. They had no, no concept and understanding of authority, and that God even delegates authority to the governing uh, authorities as ministers to him. And, um, and so, yes, there are times when you should make O's and you should keep your O's when they're made before heretics and infidels. Now, this is where I say there is a huge Anabaptist strain in a lot of the onks expressed these days. Okay? I feel my inner Anabaptist rising up anytime the government makes decrees of any kind, right? And yet we as Americans have implicitly made a, an oath 
to maintain peace in this land. And so we, um, those things are still, no matter how despicable those rulers may rule and be personally, we, those, those oaths and vows are still in effect. Roman Catholic Church believes that oaths made to heretics do not have to be kept. And so they convinced the secular rulers of the age to break this oath in order to go hound down John Huss and Martin Luther. Right? They were like, you know, Luther had his civil authorities that were saying, we've vowed to protect this man. You cannot come in and do this. And they're like, well, break those vows. Roman Catholic Church, you made that vow to a heretic. You know, break it. Nope, can't do it. All right, keep going. Stop me if you have questions, just shout. Turns to vows in section 5. Remember, a vow now is a promise to do something couched in the form of an oath. So it is an oath. When you're talking about vows, you're talking about oaths. But, but this now is not just a commitment to truthfulness, but it's a commitment to some action, some fulfillment of promises that you've made, marriage vows, in sickness and in health, right? A vow is of like nature with a promissory oath and ought to be made with the like religious care and to be performed with like faithfulness. So just like oaths are vows, they're saying. Six, it is not to be made to any creature but to God alone. That's Matthew 5, 33 to 37. And that it may be accepted, it is to be made voluntarily, not coerced, out of faith, not out of unbelief, and conscience of duty in way of thankfulness for mercy received or for the obtaining of what we want, whereby we more strictly bind ourselves to necessary duties or to other things so far and so long as they may fitly conduce thereunto. So that's telling us how these vows are to be made. Voluntarily, out of faith, and with a, a, a mind toward duty, with thankfulness, for the mercy that will be received in this, this transaction, this vow, this promise with others, right? When you vow with, in marriage, the wife and the husband vow. They receive that vow from the other person. That's a huge blessing. With thankfulness, we should hear when, when our wife says, in sickness and in health, right, in richer, poor. She's saying, yeah, I'll stick to my guns. I'll love you, you, you lazy scoundrel, even when you're poor, right? She's vowing that, and um, likewise, the husband is as well. And so, um, we should be thankful for that, and thankful for obtaining what we want through the means of that vow, okay? And then, the last section No man may vow to do anything forbidden in the Word of God. There we go. That's clear. Herod shouldn't have vowed to kill John the Baptist. The 40 men committed to murder Paul should not have done that. Jephthah should not have vowed. And 
A vow which obligates you to break God's law is sin and therefore must not be kept. Get out of that one now. Okay? Or what would hinder any duty therein commanded, or which is not in his own power, and for the performance whereof he hath no promise of ability from God. You shouldn't vow for things that God hasn't promised to give you the power to perform. What does that mean? What's an example of that? Vow of celibacy is a great example, right? The reformers, time and time again, read the institutes, just go after celibacy and the vow, but not just celibacy, perpetual poverty, vows to perpetual poverty, right? Vows of obedience to, to the, um, the head of the orders, You know, they're constantly going after that, saying God has not given you the command nor the power to fulfill those things. In the case of celibacy, think about it. Um, What does Scripture say? Scripture says that you must be chaste, but if you can't control your vessel, what? Marry. If you burn, you should marry. Right? And so think about the whole revoice movement in the Presbyterian Church in America. They are making vows of celibacy. They're saying, my affections are one way, I can't act on those affections, and therefore I vow to celibacy. And any vow of celibacy, unless you have some sort of special gift of chastity, which God does give to some few people, right? But but they as a whole group, not factoring in their constitution, not factoring in the fact that God has made men uh, and women to be attracted to one another, not factoring in the fact that they lust all the time and every day and fall into sin. Um, and, And so... The, the whole revoice movement is a breaking of this part of the confession of faith. They have vowed to celibacy, and God has not promised them the ability to be chaste. Okay? And they've renounced marriage. Right? That is the vow, a vow of celibacy. You renounce marriage as a suitable outlet for that burning passion. Right? And so... It's interesting, and so as I think about it, the revoice movement is, is, is both a attempt to normalize effeminacy, men, being, men acting the woman and women acting butchy like the man, but then it's also sinful vows renouncing marriage sinful vows of celibacy in the same manner as they were taking, taken back in the monastic age because they thought that that was true purity, that that was first-class holiness, right? Taking those vows and keeping, the, keeping those vows, right? 
And here they are now doing the same thing, that, that um, not only are we holy, but we have this thorn in the side that we always fight, right? And so you should respect our vows of, of celibacy, and the Reformers would be like, no, it's sinful, it's, it's wrong, you should not do that. You should, you should get married even though you have affections for the same sex. You should pursue marriage. You should pursue what God has told you to pursue, and you should trust Him. You know, like obedience never takes trust, does it? You never have to trust the Lord when you do something in obedience. You go and talk to your kids and try and discipline them, and you walk in there thinking, well, this could be the end of my relationship with my son. Hmm. And yet you have to do it, and, and obedience takes faith. It takes faith. So, um, they do say this, in which respects popish monastical vows of perpetual single life, professed poverty, and regular obedience are so far from being degrees of higher perfection that they are superstitious and sinful snares in which no Christian may entangle himself. No Christian may entangle himself in monastic vows, they say. Very clear about it. We ain't going that way. You know what the reformers did with all the monasteries? <laughs> turned them into seminaries, right? Turned them into, you know, turned them into places where all the reformed pastors lived. I mean, they really scooted all these Roman Catholics out of their towns and took over their monasteries. Closed that down because um, what, what was known as Christian perfection was actually bondage to sinful vows, so they freed those people from that. Another uh, similar sort of binding yourself that you shouldn't would be Masonic orders. Masons are cultists, okay? And Masonic orders and their secret vows are not something that you should entangle yourself in. Um, they go against Scripture. Um, there's also this interesting fact, Numbers 30 God protected women and children from their own rash vows by allowing the husband or father to um, negate the vow they made. The, the father or husband could come along and say, nope, 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 you can't do that. Uh, 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 uh. And it was legitimate for him to break that rash vow. Which just goes to show you that um, husbands and fathers have authority. And their authority is for the protection of those under them. It's a blessing of God. It's a gift from God. Uh, let's see. Any vow that obligates you to break God's law is sin, and it must be broken. If you have made a vow to do something sinful, break that vow right now and move on. Okay? If you have vowed to do something that isn't sinful, if you've made an oath, if you've made a promise, well, keep that vow. Be faithful to that vow as if God is watching you each moment to see whether you're faithful to that vow, because he is, right? Um, did you have a question? Somebody, oh, Michael.
regular obedience. Um, regular obedience, I think you have to, uh, there were terms that you would go into a monastery. Many of them were lifetime when you would enter into that. So you're vowing to, um, you're, you're vowing to stay. You're vowing to remain there under the authorities that are there. So I think by using regular, they're saying just a, a specified time period. It's like going into the military. You, you give them six years, and you've got to do six years. I could be wrong on that, but that's my reading. Uh, no, I don't. I think that's Jesus' point in Matthew 5, is your yes is, that's why he takes it down just to yes. Your yes is to be yes. I mean, it's, it's mind-boggling, right? But it's just as mind-boggling, it's just as mind-boggling as Jesus saying, it's just as mind-boggling as Jesus saying, if you look on a woman with lust, you've committed adultery with her. Right? If you say yes and then go no, you've sinned. So yeah, it is, it is, it is everything. And yes, those, um, the, those promissory oaths that were taken in student loans um, should be paid off by those who got them unless someone else wants to pay them off for them. And the government determined, well, one man in the government, by fiat, determined that he wanted you to pay for that. And so, I think the violation is on that side and not on the side of those receiving the forgiveness. Right? I mean, I think... So, um, any other thoughts or questions? Just think about this. Think about the way that you commit yourself to things. I mean, we, we know the big vows we take. Wedding vows, membership vows. We're going to have membership vows in our service this morning. Taken before God and you as witnesses. But just let it sink down into the truthfulness of your life. If you tell somebody you're going to be over on Thursday to cut their grass... You better be over there on Thursday to cut the grass. If you tell somebody you're going to be somewhere at 8.15, you better be there at 8.10. If it's me that's meeting you. I got, I'm going to, Sandy, go ahead. Oh, man. I think we're out of time. What about the... Pl- what about the Pledge of Allegiance? Um, it's, an, it's, an, it's an oath. It's an oath to obey. Um, Pledge of Allegiance to the flag of the United States of America and to the republic for which it stands. One God, wait, one nation under God, indivisible, with liberty and justice for all. Pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States of America. And the flag is just a representative symbol for the government. And so, in good conscience, I have um, refrained from saying that pledge for a long time. 
because of the um, because of the the wholesale murder of the unborn. Really, it's that, been that one reason. And yet, I don't think, given what they say, they would say, "Look, heretics and infidels." doesn't forbid you from doing this, and is that obligating you to anything that's not scriptural, right? Being a good citizen of your country, supporting the government of your country, is, is that a biblical uh, concept? And I would say, well, yeah, we should be good citizens. We, we are called to honor the king. So, Actually, after studying this oaths and vows chapter, I'm probably more willing to take the pledge than I was before. Yeah. But it says under God, and that helps very much. Corporate vows, like a contract for work? Totally. Let your yes be yes and your no, no. You've made those vows before God. Yeah. It doesn't mean that there may not be tweakage and, and, and uh, renegotiation and things like that, but you can't just say, you know what? That's not, I'm not fulfilling that. That's not anything I meant to do. No, can't. Anything else really quick? Good, let's pray. <laughs> Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your truth. And I pray that we would be truthful, that we would be circumspect about what promises we make and certainly the, the large and formal promises we make in oaths and vows. I pray that you would protect us and that we would, we would fulfill our vows even when it hurts. Lord, Help us, be with us as we worship you. Feed us again. Strengthen us by the singing of psalms and prayers and, and by the preaching of your word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.